some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. There's a story about impeachment that goes like this. Democrats moved to impeach Donald Trump two months ago because unlike the Russia scandal, the Ukraine scandal was simple, easy for the public to understand. If you've heard that story before, you may have also heard this one, that actually there are no distinct Russia and Ukraine scandals. There's just one scandal. Through two weeks of impeachment hearings, we learned a lot about the Ukraine backstory. The hoops President Trump and his subordinates jumped through before he hopped on the phone with his Ukrainian counterpart Vladimir Zelensky and said, I would like you to do us a favor, though. But what the hearings left fairly murky is how and when Trump came to view the allied government of Ukraine as a target for and partner in corruption. It's not as though Trump had a normal relationship with Ukraine before he became nervous about the 2020 election and then picked Zelensky's name out of a hat. To understand how we got here, we have to go back to the beginning, long before Donald Trump became president. You were reportedly the closest political advisor, American political advisor, to Viktor Yanukovych of Ukraine, who's a close ally of Vladimir Putin. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. There's been some controversy about something in the Republican Party platform that essentially changed the Republican Party's uh, uh, views when it comes to Ukraine. How much influence did you have on changing that language, sir? Uh, I had none. In fact, I didn't even hear of it until uh, after our convention was over. Where did it come from then? Because everybody on the platform committee had said it came from the Trump campaign. If not you, who? And frankly, that whole part of the world is a mess under Obama. The people of Crimea, from what I've heard, would rather be with Russia than where they were. Let's talk about this new reporting from The New York Times this morning about Paul Manafort Mm -hmm. and his dealings in uh, the Ukraine with Viktor Yanukovych. He was a consultant for Viktor Yanukovych. And apparently, the New York Times and investigators have gone back and found these handwritten ledgers. Some breaking news here. More changes at the very top of the Trump campaign. I'm told that this morning, uh, his campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, offered and Donald Trump accepted his resignation. Paul Manafort joined the Trump campaign in March of 2016. Around the time the campaign came to learn that Russia intended to leak dirt it had stolen from Democrats. At the time, Manafort was deeply in debt to a mob-linked Russian billionaire named Oleg Deripaska, and yet he agreed to work for Trump pro bono. By that point, Trump had already made a big, bizarre showing of his admiration for Vladimir Putin. But Manafort's unexpected arrival on the scene brought someone who had been at the center of the struggle between Russia and the West over the future of Ukraine into the heart of the Trump operation. And he was firmly on Russia's side. Between Trump's deference to Putin and Manafort's lasting influence, Trump's relationship with Ukraine has never really been on the level. Last year, the Ukrainian government froze all of its ongoing investigations of Manafort, including its cooperation with special counsel Robert Mueller. In an echo of the current extortion scandal, Ukraine took that action just as the U.S. finalized the sale of Javelin missiles to strengthen Ukraine's hand in its hot war with Russia. The country's president at the time was Petro Poroshenko, who was once a client of, you guessed it, Paul Manafort. And Poroshenko, 
was going to manufacture dirt on Trump's political enemies until he unexpectedly lost the presidency to an anti-corruption political reformer named Vladimir Zelensky. Or consider the Russian conspiracy theories that Rudy Giuliani peddled on Trump's behalf about the Bidens and Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election that became the subject of the Trump-Zelensky call on July 25th. Giuliani plucked those from a Russian-aligned Ukrainian oligarch named Dmitry Firtash, who was once business partners with, again, Paul Manafort. And where did Firtash get those conspiracy theories? Well, probably from any number of places, but the vector who imported that disinformation into the United States needs no introduction. Manafort's former deputy, Rick Gates, has testified that Manafort began pushing it starting before the 2016 election. So this question, why did Trump take such a predatory posture with the new government of Ukraine? The short answer is simple. He wanted to cheat in the election. But why pick on Ukraine in the first place? That is part of a much longer story. My guest this week is Frank Four. He's written extensively about Manafort and Ukraine in The Atlantic. We'll look back at the origins of the Ukraine scandal and how they disappear into a larger story of corruption, Russian election interference, and the 2016 election. I'm Brian Boitler, and this is Rubicon. Uh, Frank Ford, thanks for being here. Pleasure. Um, so for a while now, I've thought that the best way to kind of place the Ukraine scandal in the wider constellation of Trump's corruption is to just try to answer the question, how did the Ukraine scandal start? Uh, because when I try to pinpoint an origin, I realize that the dots actually extend way into the past. Uh, and it didn't just begin at random in May of this year when Trump had a freak out about about you know, his standing in the election and having to run against Joe Biden. So how is, as you understand it, did the Ukraine scandals start? So I go back to this core question that critics have always asked about Donald Trump, which is, is this guy vulnerable to foreign manipulation? And people ask that question because of the wide array of properties that he owned around the world and the way that his business interests were tangled up in places where uh, you had authoritarian governments who just weren't abiding by the same sorts of standards that that we abided by. And so I think you kind of have to go back and look at the long history of people from the former Soviet Union trying to manipulate Trump in various sorts of ways. And some of the manipulation is is willing and Trump is fully aware of what's happened. A lot of it is subconscious. And I think when you have oligarchs from Russia or Ukraine. They look at Trump and they say, oh, this guy is a totally familiar figure. We understand how his mind works. We understand how he can be, he can be influenced. And so people were using various channels to try to, to sway Donald Trump. And, you know, I think the first time we really started to acutely conceptualize what was happening, I think is with the Manafort scandal where you said this guy came from came from Ukraine he was working for the pro-Russian party why was he why had he descended on the Trump campaign but i i i look all the way through and i see you know i see you have oligarchs uh in Ukraine 
who have constantly been trying to figure out what's the right channel. Is it the campaign chairman? Is it the personal lawyer? Uh, they, you know, they're hiring uh, Fox News commentators as their lawyers. They're getting columns placed in the Hill by by columnists who they can pretty well be sure is going to end up in Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And so um, you, you know, there's, there's also the sense of kind of they know exactly how to rile him up. And so when we look at the Ukraine scandal, you know, the, 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 the narrow question that Adam Schiff is focused on is, was there a quid pro quo? Was he trying to extort the Ukrainians in order to get dirt on his uh, political opponent? But I look at it and I say, if I look at the transcripts and I look at the whole narrative of the scandal, I'd say the president was very actively and successfully manipulated by bad actors in this part of the world who, who were very, very successful in shifting the foreign policy of the United States to suit their aims. I'm glad you put it that way because, you know, listeners who heard the intro uh, will suspect that I think Paul Manafort is a big part of the origin story of the of the Ukraine scandal. And I definitely believe that. But there are these episodes that don't quite fit the picture, right? Like after uh, after Trump's been elected and Manafort's you know, no longer in the in the middle of Trump world. There's this story about this Ukraine peace plan, yeah. right? That that makes its way to to Mike Flynn, who was then the national security advisor. But it doesn't come from Manafort directly. It comes maybe not from Manafort at all. It comes from uh, Michael Cohen and and Felix Sater, who were uh, you know in league with the same sort of shady people that you just described, but on a sort of a different channel and. Even I wonder, you know, and I'm pretty pretty thick in all this, like how critical Manafort is to the story. Because if you imagine he'd like never worked for Trump, um, Trump was still very much in Russia's debt uh, when the election ended. Um, he was singing Putin's praises long before Manafort joined the campaign. He was working on the Moscow Tower project independently of Manafort. And it seems conceivable to me that we were always going to end up here because Russia helped Trump win and Russia has leverage over Trump. And so Trump was going to side with the sort of corrupt factions in Ukraine rather than the pro-Western reformers, no matter what. I think that's I think this would happen absent Paul Manafort because you you have a lot of people in. So I think that the, the, the actually the crucial thing is the development of the relationship between Ukraine and the United States and I'm just going to – I think this is a foreign policy story in addition to being a corruption story, which is that Russia – there's a revolution in Ukraine in 2014. The pro-Russian government that Paul Manafort works for gets swept out of power. They get replaced by uh, by, by a, a kind of more liberal democratic regime, albeit still oligarchic. And the United States starts spending a lot of money – protecting Ukraine. And that gives us leverage over Ukraine. And so you have somebody like Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, who's in Ukraine. All American ambassadors have always wanted Ukraine to behave um, in a less corrupt sort of way. They've always wanted presidents to challenge Ukraine's oligarchic system. But finally, we had all this leverage over the government and the government starts taking actions to clean itself up. And so um, you've got a lot of oligarchs who are suddenly very much on the defensive. Paul Manafort's clients were on the defensive. 
uh, Rudy Giuliani's kind of new clients uh, and the people that he c- collaborated with in this this extortion scheme were suddenly on the defensive. And so they needed to find a way to undermine the U.S. embassy in Kiev. And so they see that Donald Trump was a guy who they could manipulate into doing their bidding there. And there, uh, the way that they, they were able to entice Donald Trump to their side was to feed him a lot of bogus conspiracy theories that he bought into because they were um, they all adopted the kind of the memes of Donald Trump. They there were arguments about the deep state. There were arguments about how he was his opponents were manipulating things. There were arguments about how Ukraine was the one manipulating the election not Russia. Mm-hmm. And so they knew how to they knew how to 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 goad him. They knew his psyche. And um, I think it's these guys who were on the corrupt guys who were on the defensive saw in Donald Trump hope for salvation. I the the you mentioned Marie Ivanovich and I and there was you know a lot of uh the hearing with her she kept dangling this question. Why did they have to smear me? You know, why did they have to run the smear campaign? Why did Trump have to participate in it? That Adam Schiff did a decent job near the end of the hearing at, at kind of tying it all together. But, you know, the, if you if you strip away the the kind of conspiracy theories and the cloak and dagger nonsense, you you have this story that these people that you're talking about in Ukraine were proposing a, a basic bargain, like the worst people in Ukraine could keep looting their own country yes. with the blessing of the president. Yeah. And in exchange, they'd subvert the 2020 election for him, mm-hmm. but also give uh, his cronies business deals, right? Um, and it's a little unclear to me how witting Trump was about that transactional uh, situation that he was in when he was smearing Yovanovitch, when he was sort of trying to consummate the quid pro quo through the middle part of this year. Um, so I hope you could speak to that. But I also wonder to what extent Russia was invested in the shakedown because of those deals that were sort of at stake, right? Like like if, if the re- reformist faction in Ukraine um, uh, gains and sustains power, it, it hurts – Russians' financial interests, be- yeah, because of the deals they lose or the 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 looting they would no longer be able to do. Well, you know, I, I think to step back and think about Russian interests this way, it's Russia invade when Russia invades Ukraine, um, they gain a huge chunk of territory, but they also lose by by occupying that part of Ukraine. They also lose a lot of their leverage over. The Ukrainian system. I mean, for one, you had you had very pro-Russian parties that um, struggled after the invasion to make a case to other parts, to the western part of Ukraine, um, and also um, just you know a lot of their voters were now in occupied territories where they weren't able to vote, and so they they lost they lost uh, political power in Ukraine, and they've been kind of fighting for figuring out how to exercise control over the country when they didn't have a political faction that was sitting in the presidency or sitting near the center of power. And so I think a lot of what they've done is try to find ways to undermine Ukrainian democracy, to undermine pushes to make the country 
less corrupt. And so they had a strong interest in opposing and in, in, in getting rid of Marie Yovanovitch as well, because they don't want the country to take the steps right. that she was pushing for. And a lot of what she was pushing for were actions that would damage a lot of key Kremlin allies within Ukraine. When she goes after uh, a lot of these oligarchs, she's going after people who were handmaidens of the Kremlin to begin with. So I'd say let's never lose track of the underlying geopolitics of Ukraine because that's there in this scandal as well. But how witting was Trump about that aspect of it? Because obviously he wanted help in the election and he thinks about all of this stuff mainly in terms of his own self-interest. Yeah. But there's a lot of money at stake too. You know, there's money that, that – I don't – so this is a great question, something that's intrigued me, which is um, – so you have Rudy Giuliani's guys going to Kiev and Rudy Giuliani himself in, in – you know, uh, uh, messing around in Ukraine for a long period of time. And you have Rick Perry's people in Ukraine messing around trying to get various energy deals. And who was ultimately trying to get rich off of those energy deals? Whose interests did those actually serve? I think Gordon Sondland talked about – and this comes up in the hearings and other places the, – this, this Ukrainian natural state – the Ukrainian state natural gas company, Nafta Gas, mm-hmm. was something that uh, I think Sondland said – was mentioned at almost every meeting with the president. And that was something that jumped out at me because NAFTA gas, while extremely important for Ukraine and you know, the, the energy politics of Ukraine are extremely important for Western Europe and uh, for our, our sense of, of, of how of, of security for, for that part of the world, it's not really something that you would expect Donald Trump to be tracking or discussing. And, uh, you know, at the core of what Giuliani's guys, one of the things that Giuliani's guys were doing when they were in Ukraine was trying to fire the reformist who had taken over the state natural ga- gas company and turned it into a transparent, non-corrupt entity. They were trying to transform the supervisory board that was keeping that natural gas company non-corrupt. So why why were Giuliani's men trying to destroy this incredible accomplishment of U.S. foreign policy because we were the ones who made that – we pushed really hard to make NAFTA gas non-corrupt. Why were they trying to undermine that? Who was trying to get rich off of that and how how much was Donald Trump aware of that? I have no idea. Um, But but like I said, the fact that it was discussed so often is something that triggers my spidey sense. I mean I would would even buy that like – Trump must have known there were some shady side dealings because, like, why else was Rudy working for him for free, right? The 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 fact that there was some, you know, uh, there were other people like wetting their beaks around yeah. this question yeah. of helping Trump win re-election um, might just be it. Like, and he doesn't take any any particular interest in any specific Ukrainian firm or or yeah. sector. Yeah, I buy that. Um, but I guess uh, well, you know one one parallel. Uh-huh. I, I, one thing I keep thinking about is is to go back to Paul Manafort. So yeah. Paul Manafort, like Rudy Giuliani, works for the president for free. And what was Paul Manafort's game plan? He wanted to become the most powerful man in Washington who wasn't working for the administration, who could leverage the the sense of proximity 
to power in order to enrich himself, in order to get deals done. And I think Giuliani is kind of the criminal justice version of that. He's working for free. Um, He's leveraging his proximity with Trump to get all sorts of dubious clients around the world. Sometimes he goes into the Justice Department and pleads their case if they're if they're in trouble. Um, You know, sometimes people just want um, there's kind of a sense of 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 cleanliness that comes with uh, being associated with Rudy Giuliani. But it, it's he's he he's basically succeeded where Paul Manafort uh, dreamed of succeeding. Well, for now, for now, <laughs> he's got some he's got some legal trouble, just like Paul Manafort ended up. Well, yeah, we, we have we have we have absolutely no idea how much Rudy, money Rudy Giuliani has made off of the Trump presidency. We really don't have a very comprehensive sense of his client list. And therefore, we have only limited knowledge about the damage that Giuliani has done this past couple of years. My suspicion in all this has been that if if Joe Biden had decided not to run, we wouldn't have an impeachment. Yes. But the Ukraine scandal would actually end up looking quite similar to what it does right now. Because, you know, you have this story that, that I alluded to in the intro about, about um, when Robert Mueller was still doing his investigation, the Ukrainian government like shelved all of its investigations of Manafort. Totally. Um, and th- and that decision seems to have uh, been the outgrowth of a, a, another shakedown or possibly, right? Like they were – it happened contemporaneously to the to the sale of these Javelin missiles yep. that Trump kind of used as a lever over yep. Zelensky. So that happened, right? Yep. And, and that was before Biden ran. And then even on the call with Zelensky – Trump's top objective was this insane CrowdStrike yeah. conspiracy theory where Ukraine framed Russia for interfering in, in 2016. So I could actually see right. a world in which basically everything that's happened right. happened minus the Biden part. And because there's no direct nexus to Democratic Party politics and no, you know, why is Trump chasing this dumb conspiracy theory that Democrats remain reluctant to do an impeachment about it? But it's still the same corruption. It's still the same scandal. It's still, you know, um, interference in the in the 2020 election. And yet we're we're in the dark about a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, I totally I totally buy that. And and I also I mean, what is why did Rudy Giuliani first start poking around in Kiev? It's because he was trying he he was. Uh, he had assigned himself the job of writing the rebuttal to the Mueller report. He was looking for data points. Um, and now I think it's kind of telling that – I mean Giuliani is kind of – is lazy or there's something – you know, people speculate about other things about the guy. But, the, you know, obviously that 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 counter narrative never emerged. I guess Mueller somewhat left him – put him – you know, gave him an out mm-hmm. for not having to produce that document. But it was – he was going to Ukraine – to try to find information that would essentially exonerate Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. that he was looking to prove that the Black Ledger, um, which initially contained the the evidence that Manafort's work in Ukraine was truly, truly, truly shady, that that was a fabrication. Now that's a it's a wild conspiracy theory that he was he was pursuing. There's all sorts of evidence that the ledger is indeed authentic, and even. Even if we had questions about its authenticity, we know that Manafort in the in the indictments against Manafort, we can see that he was getting off the books money that was going through Cyprus and 
it's you know there's there's not even a question about the shadiness and the money laundering that uh, Paul Manafort was engaged in. But that's what that's what Rudy Giuliani was initially after, and people could have fed him anything during that period, and he would have taken it. I mean, Manafort was. In 2016, when the first reporting about Russia being behind the, the DNC hack uh, was published, he was already peddling right. the, the view that Ukraine actually hacked these emails. And you could – I mean who knows how direct it is. Like it could have been a freaking prison cell conversation for all I know. But the, <laughs> the, like the, the specific line about CrowdStrike and Ukraine framing Russia could have j- just been like a straight Manafort to Giuliani – Thing And in some weird way, like Manafort, you know, set Giuliani off on this on this mission that ended up landing Trump in an impeachment um, because it ended up intersecting with Joe Biden some somewhere down the line. Um, But I understand why that, you know, exonerating Manafort is important to Manafort and why it. In the in the Mueller days was important to Rudy Giuliani as as a um, you know a, a means of creating a counter narrative about Trump's involvement in Russian interference in 2016. Um, why do you think Trump today cares so much about the creating a Ukraine actually interfered in 2016 counter narrative? Um, like, to what extent is it his vanity about? People raising questions about his legitimacy and to what extent is it that Russia wants this disinformation out there to hurt the US and to undermine Ukrainian independence and he's just kind of – he has to do what the Kremlin wants him to do in that regard. Yeah, I think it's I think it's both of those things and a third, which is that uh, it's just the way that he nurtures a grudge mm-hmm. that – I mean it's, it's, so, it's so juvenile and um, – and pathological that you know once you once you decide that somebody is a bad person, you just it, it, like that becomes the lens through which he sees everything, and he's not able to escape it. And I just keep thinking back to those conversations that he has with Gordon Sondland, where he says it's a, com- a country filled with terrible people, and, and you know, it, and it's telling because. It's the way in which he takes this one little narrative where you know there's a guy is like an ambassador writes an op-ed in the Hill that somehow wounds his vanity and he manages to spin it into kind of a bigoted case against an entire country and um, it's 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 a sickness that he goes from the particular to the universal <laughs> in the way that he does and the ease with which he decides that. Uh, He'll make these uh, massive decisions about how to direct American foreign policy, or he'll engage in a a dumb um, a dumb scheme that that a lot of it grows out of just animosity for an entire people. All right, I've got to leave it there. Uh, Frank Forth, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. That's it for this week. But in the spirit of Thanksgiving, here's some food for thought. On Friday, the State Department released documents in response to a court order that connects Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to the smear campaign against ousted Ukraine Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. Those documents were only part of an initial production, and documents pursuant to other similar Freedom of Information Act requests should be released in the coming weeks as well. Also, the House Intelligence Committee has secured videos and images from Lev Parnas, 
a former Giuliani associate who's under indictment for funneling foreign money into U.S. elections and who has intimate knowledge of the Ukraine shakedown scheme. By the time we all get back from the holiday weekend, Democrats might have to schedule a few more hearings. This show is produced by Crooked Media. It's written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler, and our editor and producer is Stephen Hoffman. Stephen Hoffman.